You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Chris Krebs, former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, joins Washington Post Live to discuss the rise in ransomware attacks and misinformation campaigns. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ellen Nakashima, a national security reporter here at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us today for our program on securing cyberspace. My guest today is Chris Krebs, founding partner of the Krebs Stamos Group and fresh off the, uh, the wire, Newswire, just named senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. And of course, everyone knows he previously served as the first director of the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Chris, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Hey, Ellen. Good afternoon. Thanks for uh, having me. So great to have you with us. Uh, you know, there's a lot of news we want to talk through with you today in the next 30 minutes. So why don't we just dive right in? This week, sure. President Biden. President Biden signed a national security memorandum aimed at boosting the cyber defenses of critical infrastructure. The program will be voluntary at first, but administration officials are signaling they're ready to work with Congress to make them mandatory if necessary. After 20 years of a voluntary approach, Chris, is it time for regulation to make standards mandatory? What do you think? Well, I think, you know, when you look back at history, when you look at about 10 years ago with the Lieberman-Collins bill, there was an opportunity to introduce uh, at least minimum standards for cybersecurity for critical infrastructure that uh, did not withstand uh, an onslaught from certain corners, business interests. Uh, but I also think that perhaps at the time, uh, industry wasn't ready, the cybersecurity industry wasn't ready, the technology uh vendors were not ready for a rigorous federal oversight mechanism. But in 10 years, so, so much has changed, both on the threat environment, uh, but also uh, in terms of the security capabilities that are out there. And so we need to you know, align those issues. And, and so when you, when you look back across the last, last several weeks now, and even past couple of months, you are seeing some indicators uh, from, the, from the executive branch that, that more prescriptive or performance standard approaches are, are coming. The TSA directive, the first one about uh, designated uh, designated security uh, officials, which is a which is a bare minimum, right? Just bare minimum that every company has to have a 24 by seven security contact. We've had that in the shipping industry since Exxon Valdez, uh, and it's time to bring that sort of uh, same operational uh, readiness posture to to the minimum pipelines, but elsewhere. But then you saw the second directive. Uh, that started dictating some some performance standards. So yeah, I think it's coming, and I think Congress is also taking a hard look at what uh, congressionally mandated uh, requirements are are needed. Yeah, in fact, you said you uh, yesterday you met with the House Democratic Caucus on ransomware, and uh, is it your sense from talking to the folks on the Hill that the climate has now changed enough that even regulation skeptical Republicans will support legislation with mandates? I think I think so, and and this is independent of, of of any briefings I've given recently. You know, when you go back and you look at the confirmation hearings for Chris Inglis and Jen Easterly, and you had a member of the Senate Homeland Security Committee and, and Senator Hawley from Missouri, 
he actually asked something along the lines of, is it time for regulation or do we need to do have more mandatory requirements? And so I think there is an appetite. I think the, there's an awareness, particularly after Colonial and JBS, uh, those ransomware events that finally, you know, really hit at a national level, Americans, uh, you know, unfortunately what they, they care about, but also kind of the capital centers in the economy. Um, but you also look at some of the legislation uh, that's either underway, you know, already released or in, in the works. You, you, you uh, look at Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, Senator Warner and uh, Senator Rubio and their bill on uh, data breach reporting, or at least the latest incident uh, uh, reporting requirements. And then, you know, pretty much every other committee, particularly the homelands are taking homeland committees, Senate and House are taking a hard look. So. Again, yeah. at a minimum, we have to have reporting requirements, uh, particularly for ransomware. We just we don't understand what the denominator is and how many attacks are happening because companies are not uh, informing the federal government. Right. Uh, so I want to move on just briefly here to another recent uh, news event. The Biden administration recently publicly condemned China for the February Microsoft Exchange hack which was one of the most potentially disruptive nation state cyber attacks in recent memory and affected at least 100,000 servers worldwide. And they also got an impressive number of allies, including the EU and NATO, to express concern right, about attacks emanating from Chinese soil. But in contrast to the case of solar winds, where the administration in April imposed sanctions on Russia, in this case, the administration did not seek to punish Beijing. Was that a mistake? And if so, why? I so so just thinking about that exchange event in general, it was um, it, it was a it was a global uh, event attack in nature. I, I'm not sure it was the most disrupt destructive or disruptive because you know they got access and it doesn't seem that they did much with it other than just kind of hold access for potential future exploitation. And then also, interestingly enough, the FBI took some some proactive measures to disable those activities. But to your question about uh, the attribution, uh, the attribution itself was remarkable, as you pointed out. Yeah, NATO and EU and others, and that was heartening to see. Uh, but but to the, the larger point, you know, if you're going to make an attribution, we have to have consequences and penalties attached along with it. There are four indictments, three indictments on uh, Chinese officers, and then a, a fourth indictment on a private sector individual, a contractor. Indictments are good. Indictments, you know, limit the ability of those actors to be able to move around globally. But we have to start hitting uh, hitting them with some penalties. And, and one of the things I've thought thought about is, you know, what primarily drives at least the Chinese intelligence collection op, uh, efforts over the last several years is that transfer from intelligence collection to commercialization. So I think we, as a, is that same block or group of nations that, that did the attribution, we need to look and identify those companies that benefit from that intellectual property theft and put them on a banned list. So you cannot sell this. We are not gonna buy your products if they're the, the, the product or byproduct of theft. And the COMAX C-19 aircraft that uh, the CrowdStrike did a report on a couple of years ago, is, is a yeah. great roll-up of, you know, 20 different technologies that were stolen from Western companies. So essentially put some put some sanctions on them or, or export controls on them, on these Chinese companies that benefit. 
Yeah, look, I mean, if China wants to be a, a full-blown member of the World Trade Organization and participate in the global market, there have to be consequences and, and uh, you know, repercussions for behaving badly. And we've got to do more of it. Great. And, and going back to solar winds for, for a moment, which was an espionage campaign, not a disruption, disruptive campaign, as far as we know, was the punishment commensurate to the crime, do you think? Punishment being sanctions. You know, we let, let's also be clear, right, that we don't always know the full range of consequences that the U.S. government and our allies use when we make these attributions and the things. There, there could be covert action. There could be private diplomatic conversations. Uh, there are off, you know, kind of off the record engagements. We just we don't know the full range. But I, I think it, it is time that we we ratchet up the pressure on Russia again. And, and I, I know that, I, and I've had these conversations with, with uh, ex-foreign ministers that, you know, we, we feel like we've sanctioned everything that's sanctionable and that's just, that's simply right. not true. Um, you know, you, there was a great op-ed in the post by Dmitry Alperovitch a couple of weeks ago about how to ratchet up that pressure um, uh, on, on Russia. And it's going after that secondary debt market. Think about, you know, the national champions of Gazprom, uh, Gazprom and Rosneft really going after them uh, so that they can't participate in that, again, in that global market, particularly in Europe. Well, in fact, along those lines, in June, President Biden warned President Putin that if he didn't take action against ransomware groups operating from Russian soil, and most of these ransomware attacks are emanating from Russian soil, the United States would, would take action. And then three weeks later, there was the hack of the IT firm Kaseya, which was one of the largest and potentially most disruptive to date. And so he warned Putin again. He said he'd take any necessary action to defend American critical infrastructure. Look, have you seen any indication these warnings have led to a reduction in ransomware attacks? Do you think it's the right approach? I, it, it's hard to say. Again, let's go back to that uh, understanding that we don't actually have a full understanding of the landscape of of ransomware activity. It, again, th there's not a requirement for reporting, so that's why we need a mandatory reporting structure. Uh, I, I would, I, I still tend to believe that that both that Colonial, that JBS, that Kaseya were were probably aberrations in the typical ransomware uh, actor playbook. I think they they overstepped in some sense, and others they they were perhaps going for a different target, or they didn't realize what they had. Um, so, so, so it's hard to say, well, we haven't seen another pipeline get hit since then. So maybe that's success. I, I think, I think the mm -hmm. message was delivered. I think the message resonated. I think there's more we need to continue to do, but, but ransomware hasn't gone away. Yes. The dark side crew shut down. Yes. The, the rebel core, uh, the team shut down why we don't know, but we are seeing indicators that the dark side team and the rebel team, or at least parts of it have recombined to create this new ransomware team called Dark Matter. Exactly. And so it, right. it's a really vibrant ecosystem uh, that that continues to evolve and it's like water, right? It looks for the low spots. And until we put meaningful consequences on these actors where it's no longer profitable for them to participate and they don't want to participate anymore because they have it, the risk is too high, that's what's gonna change. And how you lever up that risk on them, uh, I think that's what we're, where we're still exploring. And, and we certainly, have not done enough to date. Well, another thing 
President Biden did when he met with Putin is speak cryptically about the U.S. government's cyber muscle, right? He said, he warned Putin, we have significant cyber capability, and if they violate norms, we will respond. Right? That suggests that the government, the U.S. government, can or would unleash attacks that can neuter or affect foreign adversaries' capabilities. Is, is that a, a realistic prospect, Chris? Or are U.S. government offensive cyber operations a strategic tool or more of a tactical tool that can disrupt temporarily an adversary? I, How should we think about you know, this? It, so the answer is yes, I guess, right? I mean, it's both a strategic, you think it's a strategic? capability. Okay. Yeah, it's strategic and tactical. Uh, but but the biggest challenge here, and there was a great piece, I think it was in Lawfare uh, last week or maybe early this week, about how that uh, the lack of transparency and what cyber offensive capabilities really are and what they look like uh, actually hinders the ability to have, uh, you know, weighted and balanced conversations within uh, deterrence or the deterrence conversation. Um, and, and part of, I think, you know, particularly for some of our adversaries, uh, they they trade a lot on overinflated capabilities. Uh, and so, you know, it, whether we'll ever achieve any sort of transparent, um, full transparency in what tools or capabilities we have, I don't think we'll get there. Um, but but nonetheless, you know, we, we have to start we have to continue that dialogue at the Nash at the global level rather the the um the un's group of global uh the the government experts the gge mm -hmm. uh you know updated their norm uh the norms of uh, behavior right. in cyberspace a couple weeks ago i thought that was a uh that was a continued progress but but norms in and of themselves uh when there are no penalties and, and there's no law attached to it uh in uh, you know that's not going to change behavior again as a group of allies we have to make it painful for these adversaries to participate in these behaviors we have to disrupt their ability that means going after the internet infrastructure they use uh, we have to be able to take them off uh, network as much as we can uh, but but also we've got to make it harder for them to hit us here it's still far 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 too easy for uh, for, for the bad guys to come in here and take advantage of vulnerable networks in the U.S. You know, you talk about uh, getting like-minded allies to working together to impose meaningful consequences on these adversaries, and the U.S. has been working at this for years. I mean, this U.N. set of norms, this was, uh, I think, the, the third time that, that the Russia and China signed on to these these norms that include uh, you shall not let uh, you know criminals conduct unlawful cyber right. activities on your soil, and they agreed to that, but they they still let that happen. They do it. So, what's what's it going to take, Chris? How are we going to make a, 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 you know governments allies work? together to impose meaningful yeah. consequences. Why is it taking so long and why is it so hard, especially with China? So the norms, you know, when you think about the, the some of the target audiences for the UN norms, it's not exclusively or expressly for China and Russia. It's That's also right. for emerging, it's for emerging uh, countries, right, that are getting into the space, they're thinking about developing these sorts of capabilities because it is increasingly open. Uh, commoditization of, of malware and cyber offensive capabilities are, are a real thing. When you look at some of the offensive security tools 
um, that that are just globally available, like Cobalt Strike, you know, things like that are available to anyone, criminals or state actors. And so as these emerging countries start thinking about dabbling in the space, we as, as you know, global leaders need to be able to communicate, hey, th these are the sorts of things if you want to be, uh, you know, if you want to play ball in, in the, the, the global economy, these are the sorts of things that we, we expect you to participate with. And then you've got to use a separate sort of engagements uh, which, with China and, and Russia as well. Um, but, but again, you know, from, at least from a criminal perspective, I do think that the criminal space is a lot, uh, is, is imminently more solvable than the state actor space. Espionage uh, along the lines of um, solar winds, you know, we may not like it, um, but that sort of behavior is going to continue to happen. Spies are going to spy. And so we have to just make it harder. We have to detect it. We have to mitigate it as fast as possible. What we really need to be thinking hard about, and this is what was so remarkable, remarkable about the Chinese uh, attribution last week, was the, uh, the call out of Chinese behavior uh, targeting pipelines, right? And it said that they were looking to develop capabilities down the road to disrupt functional operations of hard infrastructure. That is what should have sent a chill up everyone's back and that they are, you know, it's, it's, they're looking to hold us at risk. And we have to aggressively uh, root out that access, make it such that our infrastructure is more resilient. Are we ever going to be able to eradicate or eliminate these sorts of activities? I don't think that's reasonable. I don't think it's cost effective. I think what we have to have is a more um, nimble response posture and a more resilient infrastructure that can take a hit and keep on pushing forward. I, I could I ask you a quick uh, CISA question? I, I wanted to make sure I got to this. Some have called for removing the cybersecurity mission from the Department of Homeland Security and making CISA its own cabinet level agency. Would you support that? <laughs> you tried to trigger me, Ellen. Come on. Uh, <laughs> I, this has been a really interesting debate um, for a couple different years. And there was a, I think it was a New York Times, uh, you know, pro and con uh, op-ed between Ted Schlein uh, from Kleiner Perkins and Suzanne Spalding, my pre predecessor, about, you know, should we have a Department of Cybersecurity? And I'm not fully on board with the uh, Department of Cybersecurity just yet, but I do think we need to take a very hard look at the formulation of the Department of Homeland Security, which was thrown together in fairly, you know, rapid fashion in the wake of 9-11, you know, a terrorist movement response to, to, the, to the terrorist attacks and take a look and does, does DHS re reflect uh, our current national security priorities? And I think, I think a, a rational you know, evaluator, analyst could say it doesn't. I think we need to take a hard look at what are the core domestic uh, infrastructure and just domestic resilience activities that take place within, uh, with, within DHS and, and probably pull those together and then let the immigration and border pieces, uh, you know, group themselves elsewhere. And, and so that would look like a CISA, FEMA, um, TSA, perhaps part of the science and technology mission working together. And there's plenty of pull through uh, between those different agencies. Just look at um, all the work that the TSA and CISA have done over the last couple of years. And it's not just pipelines, it's also aviation security. As we continue to think about space, you know, there's cybersecurity uh, infrastructure issues with with satellites, with space-based and ground-based uh, space infrastructure. There's plenty of room for collaboration, and I think we just need to make it easier to work together, not harder.
Got it. So another quick question here is um, back to ransomware. You have long been one of the voices out there warning about the threat of ransomware. Just wondering why you couldn't or didn't do more about it on your watch. Yeah, I, <laughs> again, Ellen, with the questions, um, I think it's a great question. Look, I mean, ransomware has been around for uh, 10 plus years. It, it started off at a much smaller scale. And I think what happened is as it built up, it has historically been treated as a, a law enforcement matter. And it didn't really cross that threshold into national security imperative until probably about the summer of 2019. And it wasn't because 23 counties in Texas got locked up or seven parishes in Louisiana or Baltimore got locked up twice or Atlanta or Mecklenburg County. I mean, I can go on and on and on about specific events that, that should have been the wake up call, but it was when we could connect the dots of our threat modeling for 2020 uh, election preparation where we, we, we really narrowed it down um, uh, to the greatest threats, the 2020 election, the top two threats were, were ransomware attacks on, um, on uh, uh, voter registration databases. And the second one was uh, disinformation campaigns undermining confidence in the electoral process. And you know, thankfully, we didn't see any ransomware attacks on voter registration database, in part because we did launch an initiative about a year out from the election. Uh, but, it, but I think it's a fair question. Uh, Rob Joyce talked about this a couple weeks ago. Rob's now the head of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. He did a podcast with Patrick Gray, the Risky Business Podcast. And he, he, I think he put it in very stark economic terms of we have a whole lot of national security priorities and imperatives uh, and the threat landscape seems to be evolving, growing on a daily basis, but we only have so many resources. We only have so many people. We only have so many dollars. And we've got a rack and stack in their national security and intelligence priorities um, that we need to constantly and continuously evolve. And it's clear that, that ransomware, because of the disruptive threat to critical functions like pipelines, like the food supply, uh, that, that it, it, it finally, perhaps too late, crossed that yeah. threshold. My, my view is that when, it, when they were hitting hospitals during COVID, um, that was more than enough to clear that national security threshold. And look, in the few minutes we have left, I would be remiss if I didn't get to that other big uh, priority in, in, in national security and cybersecurity, and that's disinformation uh, and election security. President Biden just this week suggested that Russia was sowing misinformation to influence the 2022 midterms, called it a violation of our sovereignty. What, what do you think of his remark, and have you seen any evidence of Russian efforts with regard to 2022? So I, you know, I, I don't obviously don't have uh, intelligence read-ins anymore. I don't get to see what what's in the PDB, the Presidential Daily Briefing. Um, you know, it's not surprising that there would be information to suggest that either the Russian intelligence services or some of their proxies uh, are continuing to stoke, uh, you know, undermine confidence and stoke chaos in our democratic processes. You know, I got to admit though, they don't have to try too hard because we're doing a pretty pretty good job of it ourselves here here at home. Uh, but but what I would also encourage uh, the administration to, to, to stay on point on is that, that China, from a disinformation perspective, is, is much more subtle, much more insidious. They work it at a local level, uh, you know, where, where, where China or Russia tends to be more of the arsonist. They're, they're much more subtle in terms of laying their groundwork 
Uh, and and you, you hear Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, every time he testifies, he talks about opening Chinese counterintelligence uh, uh, activities or investigations every 10 hours. I mean, it is a remarkable, um, sure. a remarkable campaign. So I, but but I will say this as I was leaving the administration uh, last last year, I mm-hmm. as I was thinking about what I would say to my my successor, uh, now Jen Easterly, I, two two key priorities. One is ransomware and second is disinformation in the administration. Every government out there, U.S., European, elsewhere, has to be thinking about disinformation as a strategic threat. And much like we were having these uh, equities battles 10, 15 years ago on cyber, if you remember the bubble charts of General Alexander and DHS at the time, who owns what? We have to have those same conversations now. What are the lanes of uh, responsibility? And that is one of the things that we're looking at over at the Aspen Institute, the Commission on Information Disorder. What are the roles and responsibilities of government? How do we increase transparency in the platforms? How do we boost trust throughout the ecosystem? Sis, under your leadership, was pretty active in countering baseless claims about, uh, uh, you know, the election and stolen elections. But how far should CISA's role extend in the disinformation, misinformation, debunking space? Should it go much beyond uh, election security to, you know, I know you talked about uh, 5G towers not spreading COVID, but what, what how, should you be debunking all disinformation, misinformation at CISA? What do you think? I think if there's an infrastructure nexus, uh, there's an opportunity for CISA to contribute. I think what's probably the way that I was hoping it would evolve, and I think there's there's still some room to grow here, is that uh, you know rumor control, which was what we developed uh, in the run-up to the election, and in fact, we launched that, I think, on, uh, I want to say, October 20th, right before the, the Iranian uh, disinformation email campaign. Uh, but that sort of infrastructure for rumor control, um, it, that's a, that's a skill set. That's a discipline. That discipline can be uh, augmented by subject matter expertise on whatever the topic of interest is. So whether it's COVID, you can layer it on top. If it's 5G, you layer it on top. So I think CISA has an opportunity uh, to, you know, just like disinformation as a service is emerging, disinformation for hire, rumor control as a service, pre-bunking, debunking, Uh, disinformation as it hits us on those infrastructure related and national security related topics. I think there's there's plenty of opportunity uh, there. And, and, you know, again, the the challenge here is, you know, you have to think about disinformation holistically, strategically over the top. You have to figure out what the elements are. Disinformation, you know, pre-bunking is one, but but civic uh, uh, education, awareness building on how these things happen, digital literacy. There's so much opportunity out there. For, uh, to it for the government, but but also the private sector and, and others to engage. Now, a number of elected Republicans at the federal and state level are continuing to baselessly question the legitimacy of Biden's election and are pushing for election audits. Are those efforts undermining faith in the electoral process, Chris? And could that spill over into 2022 and 2024? Ellen, we've got like two minutes left. You ask me a question like that? Come on. Yeah, I mean, been absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what's going on in, in, in Arizona is a travesty. You, you, their own, the Senate liaison just just quit because of the inconsistency, the lack of transparency, and, and the lack of integrity in the process. There are certified, approved 
um, uh, 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 audit processes out there and in firms. And, you know, it's not like audits just fell off the back of the turnip truck. They've been doing audits for years and years. We need more of them, in fact, but with a transparent methodological process, not what is happening in Arizona and is threatening the spread to to other uh, other states. And, and, you know, I this thing drives me crazy. Right. I mean, shame on those that continue to uh, push the big lie. That, that continue to support this narrative that the election was stolen. And, you know, the former president pushes this still, you know, the, when it all comes down to it, it, this is all about, a this is a power play and this is about fundraising. And that's all it is. And it's a shame because the United States of America has it all on the line right now over a couple bucks. Wonderful. See so you should, triggered. This, <laughs> Last question: That should CISA be doing more to uh, to de to debunk this this big lie? Do you think um, on elections, or or should they leave it to others like you? I don't. I don't. I think CISA has done their operational role, and they've done it admirably, admirably and effectively. I think there are there are others in the community that are better situated right now uh, mm -hmm. to uh, to take this head on. I think what's happening out in Arizona with uh, Stephen Risher, the, the, the county registrar, uh, is doing a fantastic job. Uh, but, but ultimately, um, you know, some folks, unfortunately, are too far gone. I think there's an alternate reality bubble that's set up around this. I mean, I, I, you know, I make the mistake of diving into Twitter at times and looking at some of the comments that are made. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's the, the, la the, the, the alternate realities that have, have evolved. So CISA needs to continue focusing on their 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 mission and, and let others uh, take on this uh, this problem as it continues to metastasize. Well, Chris, we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation. Um, you know, and thanks so much to everyone else out there for joining us. Uh, Chris, looking forward to having you back again soon. I'm Ellen Nakashima, thanks. as always. Thanks for watching and to check out what interviews we have coming up please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more information about our upcoming programs. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.